when stillness comes on its own by Osho. The old habits will continue. The thoughts will go on rushing. And your mind is always in a rush hour. The traffic is always jammed. Your body is not accustomed to sitting silently. You will be tossing and turning. Nothing to be worried about. Just watch what the body is tossing and turning. That the mind is whirling, is full of thoughts. Consistent, inconsistent, useless, fantasies, dreams. You remain in your center, just watching. When stillness comes on its own, when silence descends without your effort, when you watch thoughts and a moment comes when thoughts start disappearing and silence starts happening, that is beautiful. The thoughts stop of their own accord if you don't identify, if you remain a witness and you don't say, this is my thought. You don't say, this is bad, this is good. This should be there, this should not be there. Then you are not a watcher. You have prejudices, you have certain attitudes. A watcher has no prejudice. He has no judgment. He simply sees like a mirror. When you bring something in front of a mirror, it reflects, simply reflects. There is no judgment that the man is ugly, that the man is beautiful. The mirror has nothing to say. Its nature is to mirror, so it mirrors. That is what I call meditation. You simply mirror everything within or without. With your watching and watching, slowly the rush of thoughts start getting less and less. Moments of silence start appearing. A thought comes and then there is silence before another thought appears. These gaps will give you the first glimpse of meditation and the first joy that you are arriving home. Mark 1, 35 through 39. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Well, our text that Shana read this morning or this afternoon um, finds Jesus in a place called Capernaum. And Capernaum is a popular, it's a popular biblical city, at least in the time of Jesus. Um, it's probably not any more special than any of the other Galilean towns. Josephus said in that land called, it's actually called the Galilee. In the land called the Galilee, that space of territory at northern, uh, north of Judea, north of Samaria there in Palestine, um, that surrounded the little Sea of Galilee, this was the place that was home to James, John. It was home to Peter and Andrew, and it was also home to the tax collector, uh, Matthew. But there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee was this little town called Capernaum, and Jesus chose to make it the center of his ministry there in the north. These little villages, most of them had anywhere from 500 to a couple of thousand people. Galilee may have been a few thousand at that time. Galilee actually, or rather Capernaum, actually ceased to exist in the 11th century um, and was no more. But archaeological evidence tells us it was just a normal little place. But Jesus would often find repose there in the homes of his disciples. Uh, most of you may know Jesus did not have a home of his own. 
Foxes have holes, he said. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He literally lived uh, off of the kindness of benefactors. People in the story like his disciples and then people like uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. There were these little outposts that would provide him what was called in the Hebrew culture a prophet's quarters. And so this was Capernaum. Jesus would be in Galilee, by our best estimate, probably some two years. This morning's text, or rather this afternoon's text, so hard to break old habits, isn't it? This afternoon's text um, locates Jesus in Galilee in the beginning of his ministry. Verse 21, if you back up in the text, verse 21 says, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum, and they went there every Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, he would go into the synagogue and he would teach the people. And verse 21 says, they were amazed at his teaching. They marveled. There was this intangible, intangible but definite difference in the way this man spoke. Never, they said, did a man speak like this man spoke. Verse 29 says, one day after Jesus had pulled an all day at the synagogue, he left the synagogue and they went over to Simon and Andrew's home, and James and John were there with them. Simon's mother-in-law was there sick, and you might remember one of Jesus' earliest miracles. He healed the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. Three verses later, verse 32 says, By the evening at sunset, word had gotten out that this man was doing spectacular supernatural healings. People knew in that little village this woman who had been healed and verse 32 said, that evening at sunset, many sick people were brought to Jesus. Verse 33 says, and a huge crowd of people from all over Capernaum gathered outside the door to watch. And then finally, verse 34, the verse right before the verse that Shana began with. So Jesus in Capernaum healed great numbers of sick people who had many different kinds of diseases. If you back up to verse 32, the New American Standard says it this way, and I like this phrase. The New American Standard says, when the people heard the work that Jesus had done, they began, listen to this phrase, they began bringing to him all who were ill. Until verse 33 says, the entire city gathered at his door. I was thinking this week as I was reading through a couple of books, um, this sermon as we begin to prepare our hearts for the season of Lent is going to be particularly about spiritual repose, contemplation, stillness, solitude, those kinds of things. So I've been reading in the last week, week and a half, just preparing for this sermon, a couple of books, one called O2 that I'll talk about in a moment by Richard Dahlstrom and another called The Act of Life by one of my favorite writers, Parker Palmer. And as I was reading through them, I was thinking about how very busy and pressed Jesus must have been. And to some degree, I was identifying, uh, this week especially, I was identifying with those words they began bringing to him. They began bringing to him. And they kept bringing to him until the entire city was at his door. And I'm not Jesus nor close to Jesus, but I couldn't help but reflect on all of the people 
and all of the places and all of the things and all of the events that life, quote, brings to me. The things that show up at my door. Got to church a while ago, I had to call Ron and say, tell Matt I'll be there at 512 because I've got a 12-year-old girl who's in volleyball for eight weeks in a row every Saturday and Sunday. And so this morning, you know this world, you know this life. This morning, 6.45, we're at the volleyball place, and we're there all day long. And I rush out, and we get to church and get her home tonight to be in bed by 8 o'clock and get up and be there at 7 o'clock in the morning. And I was just thinking, it's all good. But I was reflecting one night this week, some folk in the church were in distress and the phone call comes at 2.30 and I'm on the phone till 4.30 and a 6.30 uh, business lunch. I was just reflecting on all of the people and places and things and somewhere in the middle of that, mom calls and says, do you know you hadn't called me in two weeks? <laughs> to which I said, the phone rings both ways, mother. <laughs> Most of us wear multiple hats in our lives, don't we? And each of those hats demands things. They demand that we do something or we be something for a particular group of people. And I assure you today, as I was running around getting Nina's water and cheering for her and getting her there on time, she wasn't thinking about the sermon I was trying to fit in to my life. Please understand, and again, I'm very positive about this, I don't think my business or my life is exceptional. I think what I'm here describing is something that you either at some point in your life have experienced or you're experiencing now. My life's not exceptional in nature when compared to the members of, of this congregation. I know you guys. And I don't really uh, feel like whining about this because honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. I probably bring some of it on myself but I've just been thinking about what life, to use those words from our, what life is bringing to my door. I'm a pastor. I mean, think about filling the blanks for yourself. I'm a pastor. I am a father to two wonderfully demanding kids. I'm a son to two incredible parents that like me to call periodically. I'm a brother to a sister that I don't talk to nearly enough. I'm a brother to an older brother that I love dearly that I sure don't talk to enough and sure don't see him enough. I can't think of how many times I've driven through Memphis and on the way thinking, surely I've got time just to stop and see Steve, and I just don't. I'm a friend, a nephew. I'm a volleyball parent. I've got a kid in college. And every morning I awake with each of these groups waiting at the foot of my bed sending data to my phone, my computer. And if not at the end of my bed or sending data to my phone, pressing on my mind and heart. And every day I do what you do. I react daily to a legitimate mixture of emails, text messages, phone calls, meetings, fellow employees, board members. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, I'm supposed to read and study and write, and somewhere in the midst of that, I'm supposed to take respite from my own soul and tend to my own life. Jocelyn, I think about the kids you have at home, and then you escape to school, and there's a whole other group of kids, and then you spend all day long with kids, and you go home to kids. 
Every Saturday, you deserve for my words to be fresh, inspiring, relevant. Every Wednesday night, you deserve for a, a study to move and to um, inspire and create thought and encourage. And every time a day ends, if you're like me, every time a day ends, I'm faced with the fact that I didn't even close to get it all done. Every day when a day closes, there's still sick folk to call, the light bulb that's hard to reach to replace, and then some days you just want to hit something because you get home too late and the kids are already in bed, and man, you were trying. You're just trying, Mary, to get all the way from Clarksville down there before Maya goes to bed. Please hear me again. I love this life like I, you probably love yours, and I feel privileged to live it. And again, I'm not the exception. Change the names and the roles, and I've just described a lot of your lives. Some of you have busier lives than I have. I know that. And I, I don't know that I've ever been busy-er, but life does have seasons, and it ebbs and flows, and this is a ramping up to be a pretty busy one. I'm kind of in the making hay stage of my life, and you are, many of you too, so between the church, the kids, the volleyball, the sermons, between following Nina around from Birmingham to Chattanooga to Knoxville, meeting with the family whose 15-year-old is expecting a baby. They don't come to this church, but if they went to a church, it would be this church. And... Last night they said it was just yesterday that they were following her on her tricycle down to the store and now that tricycle is going to be passed on to a baby too early. I, I really, I stay on the move. And I've, I've got to say, all of my life, I have had the action side of life and ministry down. And maybe that's what I could call this message today, stillness and action. The action part of life, I don't have any problem with. Go, go, go. Do, do, do. Somewhere back when the one I follow said he's going to say well done, and I have been very committed in my life to doing and doing well. I love the action side of life. I thank God for it. I can get lost in it. As a matter of fact, at times when I really need to do soul work, good action can actually distract me from it and get me out of it. I continually am measuring my action to make sure that it would engender someone to say, well done. They began bringing to him. His ministry started slow. He was just easing around Galilee, fishing nets and fishermen, gathering some guys. And then all of a sudden, one day, the lady that normally cooks the meal is in the back room sick, and he does what he does, and she's healed. And by that night, the precipitous ramp had hit and the entire world, it seemed, was at his door. And it was in that setting, in the midst of a Messiah's busyness, with the things ramping up so precipitously there in Galilee, that Jesus teaches us a very valuable lesson the first eight words of today's text, I think, speak very brilliantly to what I want to say to you. 
Shana read it in verse 35. The next morning, Jesus awoke long before daybreak. So when you have the context and you see all of these people at the door, there were, there were many nights in Jesus' ministry that Jesus literally looked at a group of people and said, go home. Several times in the Gospels, he would send people home. And I've always thought, how would you like to be the next person in line? I mean, somebody who brought their sick kid from three, you know, three uh, cities over, and they're the next one in line, and Jesus says, I'm done today. And that's really amazing that Jesus was able to do that. But he would send people home and say, I'm not doing any more today. Old preacher told me one time, he said, Stan, if the Messiah didn't have a Messiah's complex, why are you getting one? So he sent them home, and, and you know, the forlorn faces of people who had come to be healed, and he says, I can't do any more tonight, and he sent them home. But then the scripture makes sense to me. It says, but the next day, Jesus awoke long before daybreak. And I think to myself, well, of course he woke long before daybreak. At the end of the previous day, there were still people left unhealed. There were still lives untouched. There were still needs unmet. There were other people, other town, other regions, other countries. For crying out loud, there were other continents and maybe other worlds. And God was here in the person of Jesus Christ to save a world. So when I read the next morning, he woke up long before daybreak and scholars, language scholars tell us long before daybreak, contextually in that place, Tommy would have meant he got up somewhere between three and four o'clock in the morning. This is not a six o'clock alarm. This is not daybreak. This is long before daybreak. So three or four o'clock in the morning. And I think to myself, of course, you know, the Messiah would beat the alarm clock and the rooster, and of course he would wake up long before daybreak because, for crying out loud, how do you stay asleep with that kind of responsibility on your shoulders? Steve, you get in ministry with homeless, and it, it'll keep you awake. The, the, every, every time the temperature hits a certain spot, it just starts eating at you. How, of course you get up long before daybreak. How do you stay asleep with that kind of love in your heart and that kind of need in the world? So awake he did, with life coming at him full bore. He awoke, but not for the reason that I would have suspected. He awoke long before daybreak and he did something against the grain, something for people who are doers like us that can be that is incredibly counterintuitive, that in the context, perhaps few would have expected of him. Mark 1.35 that Shana began with said, the next morning, with dreams and memories of those who had been turned away the night before, the next morning he woke up long before daybreak, and long before Jesus, long before sunrise, Jesus awoke and went out alone into the wilderness. I can tell you, at the speed and force life is hitting me with right now, my first reaction is not to drop everything and go to the woods alone to pray. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. 
having sent the crowd home only a few hours before, catching maybe a few hours of sleep, Jesus awoke and acted by his estimation effectively and efficiently by moving in the exact opposite direction from the crowd. By moving the exact opposite direction from the needs. By looking at those who were looking for him and going the opposite way. So for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, we really don't have any other choice but to take the life of Jesus seriously. That's why we call ourselves Christians. We take this model of life seriously that Jesus provided for us. We have been left with the purest and grandest moral specimen the world has ever seen, who had the greatest calling the world has ever known, perhaps. And this specimen needed alone time, still time, silent time. This one needed time with God so deeply, communion with the Father, that in the midst of need, he went to be alone. I mentioned the book by Parker Palmer, The Act of Life, and the book by Dahlstrom, O2. One thing that I, I would say is the synopsis of The Act of Life, the book The Act of Life, I would say it this way. The Act of Life, Palmer teaches, is not the replacement or alternative to the contemplative life. It is the reason for it. The act of life is not the alternative to the contemplative life, the still life. Ministry to everything that's at your door, the doing of everything that life has brought to you is not the alternative to the still life and the contemplative life. It is the exact reason for it. In O2, uh, Dahlstrom uses our physical body, specifically he uses our respiratory system as a metaphor. And he reminds us that our bodies, it's really brilliant, our bodies need oxygen, he says, in order to function. And Dahlstrom points out that our bodies can't live without oxygen. In order to get oxygen, our bodies have to do respiration. And respiration is twofold. It breathes in and it breathes out. One, the breathing in leads naturally to the other, the breathing out. And neither the breathing in or the breathing out is effective without the other. So if you breathe in too long, if you only breathe in, respiration doesn't work. Your lungs begin to constrict and burn. If you breathe out too long, the same thing happens. You get lightheaded. Dahlstrom, at one point, kind of in a caricatured, ridiculous way, asked the question, you tell me, which is more important in breathing, breathing in or breathing out? The reality is one is not good without the other. It doesn't take a lot of work to see what he's trying to point out here. Dahlstrom is saying to contrast the physical to the spiritual, breathing in, going to the alone place, communing with God, finding meditation and contemplation, opening your soul, stilling your mind. Dahlstrom said in those moments, we go to the woods, we go to the solitary place to breathe in divine life-giving strength. In 
many religions, but in the Christian religion specifically, and this would certainly cross over to others, we call these the spiritual disciplines. The breathing in of life is, are, are things like prayer and fasting, and silence, solitude, worship, even this, simplicity, giving, study, reading. These spiritual disciplines, we breathe in the life-giving strength of the divine. And Dahlstrom said once we breathe in that oxygen, we breathe out, and when we breathe out, we breathe out kindness and compassion and life, generosity, hospitality, service to others. And his point is that if you try, either physically or spiritually, if you try to do one without the other, you won't survive. And if you just go, 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 and, and, and if you justify it because the demand is so great and there's so much at your door and you're so needed, you may do that. But there will come a time that spiritual asphyxiation will happen to you. You may never have struggled with depression, and yet, as many of my good friends, some of us have, you finally hit that brick wall. It can be depression. It can be moral failure. It can be, it can be a mental breakdown, a nervous breakdown. There's all sorts of ways that the body mercifully will blow a fuse. There's nothing more annoying than circuit breakers going off, but circuit breakers go off because there is an overload of that which was good, and too much good, instead of, Ted, instead of giving light and warmth, it can burn a house down. And you can go and go and go and go, but the body, the spirit, has a way of throwing breakers. There are fuse boxes, and, and things like depression can come to you. I finally realized that when depression came my way, it was honestly a part of my spiritual growth. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. <laughs> maketh. And life has a way of taking your legs out from underneath you. But Dahlstrom says it doesn't have to be that way. If we can find the rhythm that Jesus found, we, we are so impressed with all the stuff that Jesus did. Hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner, sick. He was always doing, teaching, living, dying, walking on water, raising the dead. But periodically and intermittently, Jesus stole away. Even in the week, the Paschal week that we are soon to be contemplating, Jesus stole away to a place called Gethsemane. He would not even do the cross, the burial, nor the resurrection that we bally who is the gospel without first taking a sidebar in a garden called Gethsemane. For the Bible said he stole away to breathe in. Because the exhalation of crucifixion was so great that even Jesus needed repose before. To employ the analogy of breathing in and breathing out with Jesus Suffice it to say, Jesus breathed really well. The evidence is so clear regarding how effective his spiritual breathing was. I love John 20 when the resurrected Christ meets with the disciples 
and there's this moment that is such a beautiful word picture. They are distraught, they are despairing, and then with his presence, they are confused. And, and the Bible says all that Jesus did was he breathed on them. Jesus breathed on them. And as he breathed on them, the Bible said peace flooded them. The scripture also tells us that not only on multiple occasions, the Bible said that he went everywhere doing good. Everywhere he went, he was doing good. But lest we miss it, the scripture also tells the story of how well Jesus inhaled. And every great spiritual leader, every effective spiritual life that I have ever known was not simply a great exhaler, but Jeff, somewhere they learned how to inhale. They learned how to look at the crowd and go in the opposite direction and get alone. Our text this morning is an example, and the record is clear. Jesus knew how to breathe deeply in even as he's nearing the end, and I just mentioned this, but even as he's nearing the end, it's interesting, all four gospel writers not only declare his death, burial, and resurrection and the fact that he was seen by disciples, but all four gospel writers say that as he was moving toward the cross, after having his last meal with his disciples, he went out to a garden called Gethsemane at the base of Mount Olivet. He took the 11 with him. I mean, the crowd, the world was on his heart. He's moving toward the cross. He takes the 12 to dinner. One leaves named Judas. He takes the 11 out with him to Olivet. And the Bible said as he went a little farther into the Olive Press, he left the 11 and he picked three guys, James, Peter, and John, to go with him. They were the inner circle. And the Bible says he went with them and then he set them down on a rock and there's a beautiful phrase here that is so easily overlooked. After he set the three down, the Bible says that he went a little further. And I, I think that's true in life. I think there's all the stuff that, at our, that is at our door. And then I think there's the stuff that we close the door and is inside the house, those that are very dear to us. I think there's always the crowd and the 70 and the 11 and the three and then maybe even the one. But even beyond the one, there's got to be a place where you go a little farther. And he went a little farther and the Bible said he fell on his face. And he was, Scripture said, alone. And that pivotal wrestling at Gethsemane that ultimately led three hours into such utter loneliness. I, he was there three hours, but I know this feeling of not being able to bear the great weight of solitude and having to exit. Even Jesus would exit the solitude. An hour of embedding the dirt of that olive press beneath his nails as he whispered, please let this cup move from me. And he couldn't sustain the intensity of that silence and the solitude. And the Bible said he would get up nervously and he would go and each time he would find the disciples, he longed to find them attentive and he would find them sleeping. Isn't that something? And then he would go back for an hour praying. And then after an hour, he would go out hoping to find some connection, the, the loneliness too grueling and they were asleep all three times. And the third time, the Bible said he looked at them and said, sleep on. 
And there is that place where it's, it, it's not their journey. And you finally realize, I can't take anybody here. This is mine to do. And he said, sleep on. Sorry to bother you. And he went back, and it's in that final grave solitude that perhaps he had the fulcrum tipping point moment, and he broke, and he whispered, Father, nevertheless, not my will but thine. John 18, 1 says that in that final moment, those final moments of those three hours there at Gethsemane, listen to this. Uh, I don't know how I have not seen this. John 18, 1 says that when Judas gathered the group and said, I know where to find him, Judas said, we can find him in an olive press. And listen to what Judas said. Judas said, you can find him at the olive press, for he often goes there. <laughs> Drew, he, Judas said, I know exactly where that guy's going to be. He's got a secret spot. He's got a private place. Judas said, I bet we can find him there. When time gets tough and the world's pressing at his door, this is where he often goes. I am convinced the reason so many of us experience spiritual, psychological, emotional burnout and fatigue is due to the fact that our exhales exceed the capacity provided by our inhales. What is demanded of our spiritual, psychological, emotional, familial, social, financial, vocational, and all the other, what is demanded by those muscles of our life, the exhalation of our life, the action of our life, what is demanded exceeds the capacity of the spirit, the oxygen that we have taken in, the care that we have taken for our own soul. I honestly was never taught to take care of myself. I was taught to crucify myself. I was taught to self-flagellate. I, I was taught to punish myself until finally you just break down like a beat mule. And God somehow would say, Good job. Too often, if I could say anything about people like us who are driven by social action and love and commitment and a world that's hurting, too often us great doers become shallow breathers. And we don't take the time to breathe in deeply. And we commit to a bunch of exhales that we simply don't have the air for. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've always lifted weights and gone to the gym. I can't tell you how many times, and those of you that know when you're lifting weights, if you have a partner, I can't tell you how many times my partner has hollered at me in the middle of a set, breathe. Because my tendency is when I start doing the weights, I stop breathing. I hold my breath. One of my partners used to scream at me, breathe. And I, and all of a sudden, a couple more reps come that you wouldn't have gotten because you just took in the life-giving oxygen that the muscles were dying for. We don't take time to breathe in deeply. 
and our spirits and our minds, our brains fatigue and they fail. And I've learned that the inhaling life, the contemplative life, uh, is something that's a struggle for a lot of us. I always thought I was an extrovert. I'm realizing more and more the healthier I get and the more I grow and push toward my 50s, I'm probably not as much of an extrovert as I was a people addict. Always, you know, that FOMO thing that so many of us have this day, always having to be in the crowd, always having to attach to make sure everything's okay. Buechner said, for many of us in those first decades of life, as our souls mature, he says, the reason we don't like solitude is because to be alone with ourselves is an ultimate aloneness because we're not at peace with ourselves and we're uncomfortable with ourselves. And I love what he said. He said, the reason we don't like silence, Butch, is because it says too much. Even in the old Pentecostal church I used to grow up in, we didn't like silence. Man, if there were four seconds, we'd have a tongues and interpretation or a prophecy. <laughs> Just can't be silent. It says too much. Even Jesus had to come out and check on the guys. It was too intense. But the more you make peace with yourself, the less the voices torment and the more you can have self-compassion and the more you make peace with yourself, the more aloneness doesn't bother you. And I've also learned that the inhaling life, the contemplative life, does not look the same for everyone. And legalism here needs to be left off. Just as the exhaling life of service doesn't come in a one-size-fits-all, it's, it's really bothersome in the progressive liberal Christian world because there are so many causes from battered women to advocacy for kids to water wells to homeless. There's so many, and it, it's... Sometimes upsetting watching these different groups almost create a caste system. Like if you're not doing what I do and you're not committed to the cause I'm committed to, you're not doing anything. And the reality is I, I watch a group of people, not all of you do the same thing, but you do your thing. And none of us can do everything, but we can find the thing that we do. And, and so the exhaling life doesn't look the same for everybody. Just find something. Just find something. And that's also true of the inhaling life, and I'll close with this. The details and logistics of what we used to call a devotional life are for you to work out. But please hear me, work them out you must, or you will find your spiritual muscles fatigued and burning with excessive doubt Worry, frustration, depression, a lack of joy, an absence of peace, deficient of patience, quickly agitated. What's happening there? The lactic acid is burning the muscle. The excess is building up in that muscle that's deprived of oxygen. Somewhere Destinies come from character, and character comes from a lifestyle, and lifestyle comes from habits, and habits ultimately come from disciplines. 
For people like me, at some point, you just have to say, this is going to have to be a discipline. I have to work this time into my life. I don't know, but something tells me the gravitational pull of the crowd did not make it easy for Jesus to wake up at 3.30 and look at the need, see what was pressing at his door, and head to the woods. But head to the woods he did. Life has a rhythm to it, an ebb and a flow, an exhale and an inhale. 130 years ago, William Longstaff penned one of my favorite hymns. Take time, and, and please don't pick this apart theologically. Hear the poetry of it. Take time to be holy. Speak off with thy Lord. Abide in him always and feed on his word. Make friends of God's children. Help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. Take time to be holy. The world rushes in. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be, thy friends and thy conduct his likeness shall see. Take time to be holy. Be calm in thy soul. Each thought and each motive beneath his control, thus led by his spirit to fountains of love, thou soon shalt be fitted for service above. Looking a final time at the text, the Bible says he went away, he was alone in the wilderness. Let me just read it. Oh, 50 in March, and I'm going to have to give in and get some readers. I'll see if I can. My arm is just not as long as it used to be. Mark 1. We used to say, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark, the first chapter. Now we say, if you have your phone, turn with me in your phone to the book of Mark. The next morning, Jesus awoke long before daybreak and went out alone into the wilderness to pray. Listen to this verse. And shortly thereafter, Simon and the others went out to find him. My mom used to say, if I ever lose you kids, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go in a bathroom somewhere because I know as soon as I get in the bathroom, you'll be knocking on the door. <laughs> he went out long before daybreak to be alone, and soon thereafter, Simon and others went out to find him, and they said, listen to this, they said, and just think about this, I'm not, we're not messiahs, and the whole crowd's not at our door to be healed. You get the analogy. Drew, you wake up, and the whole world's at your door. He's gone out to be alone. Simon and the others follow him, and they said, exasperated, they said, everyone's asking where you are. That's what they said. Can I get 45 seconds, Mom says. They said, everyone's asking for you. And I love that he didn't reply, please leave me alone. He had been there long enough. Instead, he said, okay, we must go to the other towns as well, and I will share the gospel with them because that's what I came to do. And he got up from the alone place and went and did good. He didn't get mad at them. Their need was legitimate, 
and this is why he came. And to that end, I close with the words of Thomas Merton as the musicians come. <clears throat> Merton said, and this is so what we just experienced with Jesus there. And I, I do think there must have been a moment where Jesus was lost in the loneness of good inhalation. And he hears the voice behind him, Master. And I just wonder if Jesus didn't go. Yes, Simon. Lord, they need you. And Jesus evidently had been there long enough. He stood up and said, let's go. Merton says, there should be at least a room or some corner where no one will find you and disturb you. You should be able there to untether yourself from the world and set yourself free, losing all the fine strings and strands of tension that bind you by sight, by sound, by thought to the presence of other people. Once you have found such a place, be content with it. And do not be disturbed if a good reason takes you out of it. Love it. Go to that good thing and then return as soon as you can to the private place and do not be too quick to change it for another. Do you have a place, a gym, a yoga studio, an altar, a church, a Radnor? Do you have a place where you could breathe so you're not bitter when those kids come knocking on the bathroom door. Anybody relate? Let's open our hearts and repine. The ushers are going to receive our offering as we close our service and they can prepare. But while they're preparing to receive and the musicians are preparing, let's just still our hearts for a moment. Do you have a place and a time to inhale. Are you a shallow breather? Do you expect Saturday evenings to be enough oxygen? Find a place. Go there early or late, but go there alone. And we take time right now just with our physical bodies. Would you just breathe in with me? Numa Hagion, Holy Spirit, the breath of God, breathe in. How naturally now comes the exhale. Sweet Christ, we open ourselves to your life. May we find great example and inspiration there. May this week even, we be filled to the brim by the breath of God. Breathe on us now, we pray in Christ's name. God's people said, amen.